This podcast is brought to you by Google Search. Google Search helps millions of people across the UK every day, whether they are finding ideas and inspiration, discovering brands, or looking for the best deal. Search is where your customers find what matters to them, so it's where you can find what matters to your business. To find out more, search for Think with Google UK. That's thinkwithgoogle.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Marketing That Matters, a four-part series in which we delve deep into some of the most celebrated and effective campaigns of recent years, as told by the key people behind the activity. Our subject today is The Fixer by Direct Line. The long-running activity, which featured actor Hyvie Keitel playing his Winston Wolf character from Pulp Fiction, helped the brand position as the customer's helper, enabling it to secure profitable growth by going direct to consumers in a market dominated by price comparison sites, while rallying the brand's workforce around a common purpose. To get under the bonnet of the award-winning campaign, I have Mark Evans, now Managing Director of Marketing and Digital at Direct Line, and then Marketing Director, and Saatchi and Saatchi Chief Strategy Officer Richard Huntington, whose agency worked on the campaign. Hello both. Hello Russell. Morning Russell. Let me take you back. Describe for me the context, perhaps, of the market and category, and the state uh, of the brand health of Direct Line at the time. Yeah, so I mean, there's quite a bit of context to this. So the first thing to say is that we had a burning platform, uh, which is actually usually quite a good place to start because it means that you face into the challenges that maybe you've overlooked for a while. So insurance at a bit of a low ebb in terms of being very heavily commoditized and low trust and a brand in trouble. Uh, so new business was declining at 18% year on year. We were kind of falling off a cliff from a brand performance point of view. Uh, and an organization that had just gone through an IPO process to separate from RBS and um, was really trying to find its feet again and uh, had put the name above the door. The brand name became the company name. And so it was a, it was a, a tough situation where the brand had really lost its way, was in decline, uh, wasn't really pivoting off of an uh, irrelevant or strong insight. Uh, and was really following the tide, and that meant an inexorable decline as more and more people chose to shop on price comparison websites. So we we were in the shtum and, and really needed to dig ourselves out of that. So no small task then. The stakes were incredibly high when you set about thinking about what's next. Yeah, and in the rearview mirror, unequivocally, had we not turned this around, you could easily argue that there would not be a business today because it is the biggest brand that drives the majority of returns to shareholders and profit and so on. So, yeah, uh, the, the stakes were were extremely high. And so the obvious question is, well, how did it come to be? And I think marketing in the previous organization had very much been in the shadows and not really been able to surface the decline of the brand and the lack of or declining strength of the brand, it just hadn't really come around as a conversation. And we were growing relatively unprofitably on price comparison websites. And that was eclipsing the fact that our core hero brand was in a lot of trouble. And you mentioned insight there. How did you go about, as every good marketing strategy uh, will begin with orientation? So, So what was the insight process that got you to 
a point where you could say these are our points of differentiation. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll hand to Richard in a moment because that that notion, the distilling, purifying notion of being fixers, was really some of the magic that that Saatchi's brought. But but there, there was no secret sauce or silver bullets in our front end insight process. It was going back to doing the very stereotypical uh, segmentation processes, looking at unmet needs, uh, talking to customers about what was missing, and and. I suppose in a nutshell, it's it's amazing that the whole industry had really lost sight of its raison d'etre, which is to put things back into place after they've gone wrong. And, and nobody had really communicated about that for perhaps for decades. Uh, and so the insight was hiding in plain sight. And it was such a purifying insight that became a golden thread to everything, including internally. Um, but I'll, I'll hand to Richard in terms of how that really came into meaning as a, a communication thought, as a brand thought. Richard, you've been nicely teed up to talk about Saatchi magic. <laughs> Off you go. I mean, to, to be honest, it was always a uh, a wonderful pitch opportunity for us uh, because the because of the quality of the problem. Here was a, a genuine commercial problem and an organisation that was ready to do whatever it took to, to solve that. So, it, so uh, it, in large part, uh, we were we were keyed up uh, or, or clued up for for, for success. I, I think the the thing I stared at a lot was. Um, um, could you make the case for a direct insurer in a market that had become commoditized? Yes, but also uh, had educated consumers to use price comparison websites and care only about price uh, price at the point of purchase, uh, that nothing else mattered in the insurance experience or process. Uh, and uh, the thing I started to become really interested in is could you get people to care uh, about whether the insurance actually worked when you needed it and wasn't that really what good insurance was all about uh, coming to people's rescue after all historically you know the the direct line telephone had come over the horizon at the end of all of those uh, original ads and uh, could, could we understand uh, or or think about insurance in a completely different way to the way the market had educated consumers to think about it and that that was uh, that that was that was important because that felt like a place that direct line could win uh, that we weren't ever going to win uh, on price and cover at the point of purchase but we could uh, win on performance at the point of need uh, and there's sufficient evidence in uh, the proposition at the time to suggest that uh, that, that direct line could could um, could do what good insurance does. And for me, that is not giving you some money uh, because you've uh, had a bit of bad luck. That is uh, putting um, putting things right. Great insurance isn't about financial restitution, really. It's about uh, making it like that problem never, ever happened to you in the first place. Uh, so, so you know, we've all had that feeling when we uh, lose our, our wallet, we have our bike stolen or our home is broken into, you just want it to be an hour ago or a, or a day ago before any of this happened. And that, and that seemed to me what, what great insurance is about. And then I had a, uh, th- th- this sort of slightly strange uh, experience just before our final conversation with Mark, which was um, uh, out in Vietnam, I... Um, I was uh, on a workshop in Vietnam of all those glamorous things that planners get to do. And I had everything that I had taken with me, all my bags stolen from the concierge. Uh, and, 
it, it made me realise that what I really wanted at that moment wasn't wasn't a, somebody or a shoulder to cry on or empathy or uh, somebody to pat me on the back and say, uh, never mind, that happened to me too, isn't it awful? I wanted somebody to sort the problem out. Uh, and, uh, and that was really helpful because it suggested to me that there was a role for a brand that, yes, uh, would fix people's problems, make it like they never happened, but also had a sort of a personality and an attitude and a can-do spirit, which was just about, I will take this problem away from you. It wasn't about necessarily about my shoulder to cry on. And uh, that became really important to the way that the brand uh, eventually showed up in, in quite a sort of muscular, almost... Um, almost curt way. I mean, that's that may be the way into to talking a little bit about Winston Wolfe, but, but that was all wired into this idea that, that we were going to solve people's problems for them uh, and we, were, we weren't going to make much of a fuss about it. So I suppose your insight comes from your trip to Vietnam. I thought you were just for a moment going to talk about your time during the Vietnam conflict or something there no, for a that, second. Not that old, Russell. <laughs> uh, but in, uh, uh, and at the time I called it method planning, which is slightly fanciful. But uh, but uh, it was just a, sometimes you know you have a you have a, a sense of something and uh, and something happens to you or to someone you know and you, and it just clicks. Um, and that, that's I guess that's it's partly why. It's part of the magic of, of, of this solution because there is a logical uh, part of this story, uh, but there's also a sort of, that's slightly bonkers. Yeah, I, I think there's, it's worth adding because, you know, it's the, it's the bits that happen, uh, the unplanned bits that happen uh, that are perhaps most interesting for people to hear about. And so th- there was one brilliant planning chart that Richard produced, which really helped to frame the point of need versus point of purchase problem which was a a little moon and a big sun and an eclipse and price was the little moon and it was completely eclipsing the product and so we everybody had lost sight of so that was really helpful um but i think that it's the bits the unplanned bits which are also important in the chemistry between a client and, and an agency in one of our chemistry meetings um uh, magnus and richard and the team were probably saying everything that they were expecting was wanting to be heard by a client that didn't really mean that they needed a massive transformation. Because our, our brief said that, but there are many briefs that say that, but the client's not really up for it. And so there was a bit of a timeout in the meeting and we sort of declared ourselves, you know, we mean it, we need it. And and then something unlocked and Richard did his Vietnam rant and we talked. And I think that then even spawned a conversation and a lift which led to the creative idea. Yeah. But it but it was it was just sort of, you know, as as I talk about this, sort of slightly hairs on the back of my neck. It was it's the it's somehow, somewhere, you create a context and you have a relationship between a client and an agency which leads to some a, a little bit of magic um, and chemistry that, you know, with the best will in the world and the best brief in the world, you don't quite get to. And that's the bit that's hard to put in a bottle. So you've got the idea, you've determined that the way you're going to win is to focus on brand and what that brand should mean to people and how that will play and sit apart from the rest of the market. Let's go back to that lift. And how do you get from that to asking Javi Cartel to reprise his role from Pulp Fiction? Because uh, that seems like a big leap. Yeah, yeah, I I guess it does. But it's one of those strange experiences. We'd actually been to a QA and a in Bromley uh, and I'd I'd had this thought at the time about... um, 
Direct Line was about being properly insured. And uh, the strategist at, at Direct Line Group uh, said, no, no, you've got it completely wrong. This is really early in, that, in the process of trying to figure out how, how to solve the problem. And he said it's, it's more about proper insurance. Uh, and I came out of that uh, and had a, I was having a conversation with Paul Silburn, who's the ECD on, on, uh, on the project, uh, about proper insurance. And this idea of turning things back like they never happen. And he literally in the lift uh, at, at Direct Line said, that's a bit like that scene in Pulp Fiction where Harvey Keitel helped Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta to clear the brains off the back seat of a Chevy Nova. And uh, and I think in lots of ways, you know, it's like one of those weird things we go, you don't notice, you don't know the significance of something when it happens. That's just a, a creative director with, with a great analogy. But, but a, a, a lot of the, the creative process was actually then in, inhabiting that. And also, to be honest, getting teams to write to it because, you know, uh, teams had lots of different ways. I mean, I think ultimately in the district meeting, there were three routes. You know, there were other ways of doing this. Uh, so, so a lot of it was about really understanding whether this was, this was, this was going to, this was possible and it would do, do the job. And just as, a, as an aside, how do you go about getting Harvey Keitel on board? How does that work? Well, you, you sort of you ask him. Uh, and uh, Nicely. It, very nicely, don't you? And, um, and there are lots of layers, and, and we've had to, you know, uh, that, because the uh, property of Winston Wolfe is also the property of Quentin Tarantino. So we weren't, what we weren't doing, and this, is not, this is, was not a celebrity endorsement campaign. This is not Harvey Keitel, this is Winston Wolfe. We were bringing back the character of Winston Wolfe, who is the world's greatest problem solver, in, in popular culture, and we were pressing him to the service of, of direct life. So we were wanting to buy everything about him. And you, even if you, if you look at almost all of the pieces of work that we've made, there are, there are direct references to the movie, that, the way that he, that he rings the doorbell at the beginning of some of those early, it's exactly uh, reprising uh, um, uh, Harvey's original role. Uh, so so that, that took a long process. And, and what... what you know, Mark and I often say is is there was a trust thing at at play here. You know, Mark had to trust that that the agency standing in a pitch and saying, "Oh, we're going to uh, hire the services of the world's greatest gangland fixer," um, could actually pull that off. And and I think we had a, a a kind of we had to to look Mark in the eye and go, "And you and can you get this through? Can you make this happen?" Uh, so there's a there's a mutual trust that had to go, and we both had to pay different parts, but. But to pull that off, because you you know there are any number of uh, of not quite as good fixer ideas that that we could have used at any point. Yeah, we we let's just say we rolled sixes um, because there are a number of reasons, many many reasons why it could never have come to be. Uh, not least around Harvey, you know, to Richard's point in research, we explored any number of fixers, and even for people who uh, had never seen the film, but. I guess, you know, it's just a cultural reference or just the way that Harvey Keitel comes across as Winston Wolfe. He was the daddy of fixers. There wasn't, everything else was a pale imitation. So we, we had to, and we did roll sixes. And the trust point is a key one. Uh, it wasn't actually said out loud, but it could have fallen down on the fact that uh, senior stakeholders in the in direct line, line group wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't accept it. And, or we just didn't get the, the, uh, the will of Harvey Keitel. It seems like a perfect match. Uh, the fixer, the fixer in chief. In retrospect, you couldn't have gone anywhere else. But as Richard's just mentioned, 
his role in Pulp Fiction was fixing a very particular problem and uh, one that doesn't happen every day, cleaning up after some gangsters had inadvertently killed somebody. Now, that must have been something that met some resistance at Direct Line. Well, yeah, and very specifically, you know, Marvin's brains have been blown out. So, you know, it's not your everyday insurance problem and it's slightly on the wrong side of the law. So it is, it is curious as a metaphor that you would have a gangster as this, you know, your, the metaphor for your intent as an insurer. Um, but, but it is such a great fit because he dealt with problems in a very elegant, uh, streamlined, uh, succinct way. And, and that's what we aspired to do as an insurer is to make these problems disappear. And so the, the metaphor worked. And, you know, clearly we researched this. This wasn't a flight of fancy, but the metaphor hung together and, and people understood the the humour of it. And, and you know, I, I'll not to be too uh, sort of flippant, but it helped that some senior stakeholders were sort of midway through the Breaking Bad box set at the time. So they they, they got the genre and, uh, you know, that helped to legitimise the whole thing. But, you know, there, there were a couple of really, really tricky moments. Uh, and, and one which I can talk about in the round was the fact that Paul, and Paul, has, Paul Geddes, the CEO at the time, uh, has spoken about this externally. So I think it's sort of safe uh, from a, for a career management point of view to talk about this. But, you know, he, he, he didn't like the idea or he was very nervous about it. About it, as any sensible CEO would, he raised very, very legitimate uh, uh, um, questions about it. And this was on a sort of a, a one-to-one walk around the agency building, where you know it started as a trivial conversation and sort of progressed into a much more meaty one about are we going to actually do this? Um, you know, Harvey Keitel is quite old, and you know he is a gangster, and we've had problems with talent in the past. That's another podcast. Um, and uh, you know, um, if, if there's any reason why we shouldn't do it, then it's okay. You know, it's sort of nervous, cold feet sort of thing. Um, and uh, that's uh, that's that was the really the only value that I added to the whole experience was to help Paul to be more comfortable with this. Uh, not to say, look, we don't have a plan B. I mean, as it goes, we didn't. But, you know, that's the wrong thing to do because CEOs can create plan Bs. That's what they do. Uh, but just to really double down on the fact that it was the right thing to do, the evidence we had, the rigour we'd approached, uh, the so on and so forth. And that that was one of probably several you know moments where it nearly might not have ever happened. But in the end, when we saw that the belief it was creating internally when we took it, the, Richard and the team took it back to the marketing department, re, redid the pitch, you know, tuxedos and all. Um, and when we saw the, the belief that it could create in people, it was really the tonic, what we needed culturally as an organisation. And then it, then it gathered momentum. And, uh, and actually there's a, a number of people, including myself, where it's literally the, our favourite film. You know, that always helps. Uh, and then we got on, and then we got on and, then, and I'll come on to it later, but, you know, it became that golden thread that hung the whole of the organisation together for that critical moment in our history. Well, let's just dwell on that for a moment because, of course, it it wasn't just a a positioning for a a campaign. The Fixer became, as I mentioned in my intro, a rallying call for all of the organisation. Can you tell me a bit about how it was embedded into Direct Line? Yeah, so so, um, I think, you know, it's something that creates excitement. So it it is the best pitch I've ever been in. so far and I can imagine would ever be you know again hairs on the back of the neck when you just know you've got a piece of gold uh, piece of magic in your hands you know you 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 fight for it um and and I think it generated excitement it's it's bold it's daring you know we talk about bravery in marketing and I think you know it was it was brave but for all the right reasons not for frivolous reasons and so I think internally it was very very galvanizing so yes it was the lightning rod for our communication our propositions our customer experience and so on but I think more than anything it just said we, we can disrupt this market again 
we can believe in ourselves again. And, and it's really clear about how you need to show up. And we translated the notion of the fixer through into a really clear cultural mantra, which is that we need to be on it. And so we had these sort of eight foot high pillars, WWWD, what would Winston Wolf do? I and mean, it's such a straightforward reference. Uh, and, um, and, and so that became very, very important in terms of Im- improving our customer experience, improving our culture. And I'll just give one small anecdote that brings it to life, which was uh, that our Twitter feed was um, yeah, managed out of Doncaster at the time, still is. And uh, somebody, in Don- a, a customer in Doncaster had their TV stolen. Uh, and so happy coincidence. But anyway, the person tweets in, says, I'm annoyed because my TV hasn't arrived. It's been a few days. I wanted to watch the boxing fight with my mates. And to cut a very long story short, the colleague on our Twitter handle in Doncaster chose to log off, drive home, pick up their own TV, take it to the customer's house so that they could watch the boxing fight. Don't get me wrong, afterwards, the risk police kind of had a bit of a, you know, apoplectic fit about the whole thing. But in the moment, that person knew what it meant to be a fixer, no more, no less. You know, what else could I do? That was how I was going to fix the problem. So I think it just became that, you know, who'd have thought? Kind of broken sector, commoditized kind of broken business or recovering from an IPO, broken brand, you know, a little bit of a beleaguered marketing team. And the answer to all of, to everything was fixing. So it's it's impossible to imagine a more pure golden thread where the insight is the answer to the all of the problems of the, the brand, the team, the business, the sector. And so it's that congruence which really drove energy and passion. We talked about it being a brand campaign, an archetypal brand campaign at the beginning, which obviously influenced your media strategy. Talk to me about how the media strategy for this campaign was perhaps different from both the market and indeed what you'd done before. Yeah, so uh, and again, I'll hand to Richard and Mo because I think in the end, it's, it was a classic case of it was the 30-second TV ad which drove out the thinking. Um, for, for us, I mean, it, actually, the the creative concept itself didn't really drive the media strategy in that we're very heavy on... TV and traditional media because econometrics uh, proves that that works and we've got a very well documented uh, long-term case uh, that Ritson's highlighted and you know we won a few IPA golds around um, but you know we're, we're very heavy on traditional media particularly TV uh, and we have a strong search very strong search capability we, we describe ourselves actually as digital conservatives in that we're not at all heavy in fact we're very under index on digital display and programmatic uh, you know there's well trailed around problems of transparency and fraud and ad blocking and so on and, and a couple of times over we've proved that that doesn't really deliver for us um so actually the tv campaign itself is is was and will be crucially important to us no oh, it's, it's been a really interesting you know case study lesson for for us and for me in in the power of uh 30 seconds to do a lot of heavy lifting um but i would say that you know at the heart, you've talked about the fixer, at the heart of everything uh, that we're doing creatively, there's this rock solid strategy and, and not just a communication strategy, but something that lives at the heart of the business driving, you know, helping drive proposition development, uh, internal culture and communications. So, uh, so uh, you know, while, the, while the, there is this sharp nose cone at the front end, uh, it, is, it, it is driven by something that's, that's much more substantial and feeds everything that we do across media. So whenever we can't use uh, Winston Wolf, we are still embodying the, the personality, the language, the ethos uh, and, the, and the products and propositions of fixing. Tell me a little bit about 
how you might have used search in this campaign? Uh, so um, insurance is an interesting sector because for many people, they they really don't want to think about it too much. Uh, you, got, you can't overgeneralize. Many people understand the value of insurance. That's the reason, the reason why a direct brand can still live and thrive. Uh, but, but it's something that, you know, for some it's a grudge purchase, but you, you know, you don't ultimately, you don't want to have to use. So it's not something which lives in people's consciences day by day. So actually that renewal letter is often the first time people think about insurance. And for many, the first thing they do is they go onto Google and they put motor insurance or home insurance into the search bar, and that starts their process. In truth, many people then have multiple iterations take several weeks to actually make a decision because it is a high-value purchase, uh, and people do worry about making a mistake. So uh, actually, search is sort of almost top and bottom of funnel uh, in a quite a weird way, and it's very sector-specific. But there's no doubt that it does a bit more than harvesting for our sector, uh, but it's incredibly important for us that to 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 close out our the bottom of our funnel um just because it's it's the you know it's a key entry point for customers into the marketplace and so you know as you might expect we spend a lot of money uh from a search point of view and work really hard to optimize and build capability to stay ahead of the curve in that regard what would both of you looking back on the campaign see as your the major success of it yeah well um Richard will add lots to this, but it, you've got to start with commercially, did it do the job? Otherwise, it's all nice, but so what? And, and I mentioned before, minus 18% in 2013. By 2016, it was plus 30%. So that's a dramatic turnaround. And these are the high-value customers. So it really underpinned our commercial success for a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's never all perfect along the way, but really it helped us to rekindle the most valuable part of our business. So that's the most important result underneath that brand much stronger found a reason to start innovating again uh, a 20 percent improvement in uh, employee engagement in that chimed with the improvement in an equivalent improvement in mps um there are other factors that will have driven employee engagement, but it was a key one. So I mean, I think you know all all of the sort of the the customer metrics, the brand metrics, the people metrics. Uh, you can you can see the U shape, or even closer to a V shape, uh, in in the charts. If you go 2012 to 2016, let's say, Richard. Yeah, I mean, I, I think j- just to reiterate, the, the, the commercial effect is is the thing that we're all most proud of. But what was stunning was how fast that turnaround took place in the market. And, you know, we talk a lot about, well, you know, if you're going to invest in brand, it's going to take a while to show through. And that wasn't necessarily our experience. It was... And I had this visceral sense because we've been through a lot of research about the transformative power of, of this idea in people's minds. It was amazing to see that happen live um, as as the the decline slowed and then turned. Um, I, I think the other thing that as a sort of partner you notice most it is the confidence of, of Direct Line as a brand and Direct Line group that, that is in part uh, due, due to this success story and, and, a, and a group of people at marketing and beyond that started to believe that, that, that actually their destiny was in their hands and, 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 and they, could, they could be the architects of what the success of Direct Line in the future. And they didn't have to accept that you know price comparison sites were going to have 
have it their way or, or that in some way this model, the direct model was over. Uh, and when you see an organization uh, bristling with that s- sense of confidence and, and optimism, it's transformative. And we've done some extraordinary things uh, more latterly around the Fixer campaign, uh, particularly to do with uh, innovation, techno- technological innovation, our Fleet Lights uh, uh, campaign in particular, and safe crossings. But I think that that could only have happened because th- there was a, there a, a group of people who now believe that they, they. I mean, I've said it before, but they were the architects of their destiny and not somebody else. Uh, yeah, Richard makes a, does make a killer point that there was a low belief. Um, you know, kind of lost brand and marketing team lost their mojo. Uh, I remember from my days back in Mars that we used to talk about a market leader mentality, and I think that had completely dissipated and hadn't had, had believed we were out of control of our destiny. And this this campaign has probably been the single biggest contributory factor to regaining that market leader mentality to to believe that we can continue to disrupt the market and so but belief is in, incredibly important in this mix and the, the the scale and impact of the campaign has probably you know there's maybe 200 people have passed through the marketing department in the last five years in some way shape or form have been close to or involved in something which is genuinely disruptive and market leading and hopefully you know one of the unseen benefits of this and it may be the true true for people in the agency as well is that they it, it sort of re sets a different direction for their careers in terms of a belief about what is possible to borrow your description richard it was a truly transformative campaign it seems transformative in regards to brand health and transformative in regards to the organization and most importantly in terms of sales thank you very much richard thank you very much mark for taking the time today. Thank you. And now here's my Marketing Week colleague, Michael Barnett, who's going to explore how this campaign generated a direct response through search, why it achieved the results it did, and how other brands might be able to replicate that. Thanks, Russell. I'm here with Gemma Howley, who is the search lead for UK and Ireland at Google. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit more about the campaign and uh, the role of search in it. But before we get to that, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what your role is, um, how you... Uh, explain the magic of search to brands. Sure, yeah. So as you said, I am search lead for the UKI. I am focused on helping the largest clients and agencies in the UK get the most out of search. Ultimately, we want to help solve our customers' business challenges, and we believe search can be a big part of that. We communicate the magic of search, if you like, by really starting with the customer. What is it that they want to achieve? What is the single most important thing? What challenge do they need to overcome? Then we work collaboratively to highlight how search can be a part of that solution. And that collaboration works both internally at Google between the teams that we have and also externally with our clients and agencies. Okay, thank you. Um, Now, can you tell us just a little bit about what role search played in this direct line campaign uh, and why it was so important here? What we love about this particular campaign is that not only was search an effective channel to drive response, they used a call to action in their TV ads, but the channel informed the strategy and direction of the entire campaign. They used search data to find what matters to consumers in their everyday lives. So a really good example, they used search trends data and they were able to identify what problems people were interested in fixing, such as how to deal with red wine stains. That then informed their YouTube content strategy, so what they actually put into their ads on the YouTube platform. 
The team also looked at day of week and week of month search trends on all the key insurance terms, and that allowed them to phase their TV activity. So while search was an impactful channel to drive response for Direct Line, this campaign shows the power of the channel outside of that traditional role. So talking about traditional, uh, why search now? Why is it relevant to today's campaigns? I've worked in search for just over 13 years now. And in that time, there's been a huge growth in the number of other platforms that advertisers can advertise on. But ultimately, I still feel passionately that search is the best of them all. I am a search fangirl. It's the internet's front page, and whether it's for timeless advice, a pair of new shoes, or how to get to a podcast recording, search is where you go to find the information that matters to you. And you get it at the touch of a button. I think in this context, when we're talking about our advertisers, it's where their customers and potential customers go. So that's really important to remember. Why now? I think search has become essential to our daily life, but it is taken for granted. We want to highlight how miraculous search really is and how it can cut through with unrivaled precision and give you the answers that you need. Search is so often seen as a brilliant channel for acquisition, a place to drive sales in a really efficient way. That's absolutely true. It does do that, but it can play a bigger role than that. The channel is important to campaigns because it can deliver, but we must start with that business challenge. What is the single most important thing that the advertiser wants? Is it more sales or revenue, a better understanding of the value of their marketing spend? Do they want to increase their market share or spend their budget more efficiently? There are strategies and approaches in search that can help deliver on all of that stuff, but search must be part of the conversation. And how should we think of search beyond its more traditional role? Search is ubiquitous. I think we see it being used as a branding tool as well as a traditional direct response tool. People use search to find ideas and inspiration, narrow down options, find information that can be trusted or even the best deal. Using search, marketers can find those users who are finding what matters to them. And it's the ultimate precision that search brings that makes that really impactful. Because ultimately, we know that search is effective. Across all categories, over 90% of in-market consumers use search in their purchase decision making. And this rises to 95% when we talk about retail. But examples like Direct Line show how search can be a driver of insight to influence other channels. We know it can uncover trends that advertisers can take advantage of to drive, say, additional volume. The important thing here is to start with what the advertiser wants or needs and then find the search strategies that will help them get there. Okay, Gemma Howley, thank you very much. You have been listening to Marketing That Matters, sponsored by Google Search and brought to you by Bauer Creative London with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Tim O'Donoghue. In the next episode, we will be discussing the British Army recruitment campaign, This Is Belonging, with Capita, Karmarama, and Havas. You can listen via Marketing Week's page on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud, where you can also check out other podcasts, Marketing Week Meets, and Marketing Week Explores. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by Google Search. Google Search helps millions of people across the UK every day, whether they are finding ideas and inspiration, discovering brands, or looking for the best deal. Search is where your customers find what matters to them, so it's where you can find what matters to your business. To find out more, search for Think With Google UK. That's thinkwithgoogle.co.uk.